2: In a far-off kingdom,
0: more than anything
2: lived a fair more maiden, than life. a sad young land, wish and a childless baker. More than
0: life I wish. with his wife. More than, anything. More than Gumbel. Gumbel. I wish. The king is giving a festival. More than I wish. I wish to go to the festival.
1: For the ball. I
0: wish my cow
1: would give us some milk. More than anything. I
0: wish we had a child Squeeze Squeeze <gasps> I wish to go to the I wish festival. Hi, (laughs) this is Colin McEnroe. By the way, the person doing the narration there is Andre Gregory. And we're going to have, God willing, Andre Gregory on our show, although it keeps getting postponed. It might be like in November now or something. But I am going to get to do a whole show with Andre Gregory. I'm going to have not my dinner with Andre, but my chat. All right, so we're going to talk about children's literature today. Now, why are we doing this show today? Well, partly it's a good thing we're doing this show today because we did a very adult show yesterday, which some of you may have heard. So maybe we need to go in the other direction now. Although today we might talk about Maurice Sendak's In the Night Kitchen, which one of our guests and I both agree is basically about the same subject we did the show about yesterday. But also because children's literature, you know, it really is. It's in us. It's it's part of our cognitive DNA. I think you know, there is no such thing. I, I get that. But I mean, for example, my dog, Declan, follows me around all the time. And so from time to time, I will say to him, I have a little shadow that goes in and out with me. Now, that's from Robert Louis Stevenson's Child's Garden of Verses. It's just there in my head, you know, don't, it'll never leave. Um, and I think we also have these books that are meaningful only to us. I, I, I can't be the only person with this issue. I have sitting right nearby me right now a book called Three Men on Third by Gene Olson. It is so far out of stock that the only way to obtain it is from one of those things where libraries sell off their collections. You know, <laughs> and So I have this incredibly battered copy of this book from some defunct library. Uh, but, it's you know, when I was in... Maybe sixth grade. It spoke to me. It was written in a, in the way that I thought, you know, I, I felt intelligently addressed as intelligent, intelligently as you could address me as a boy and have me get it. So there's things like that too. And we have terrific guests to talk about all this. Uh, one of them is Bruce Handy. He is the author of Wild Things, the joy of reading children's literature as an adult. Uh, he actually also has this very, first uh, own picture book coming out next year. It's called The Happiness of a Dog with a Ball in Its Mouth. Uh, And I asked Declan whether he would be willing to blurb it, and he said balls drool, sticks rule. You know, Bruce, I do feel like you're going to hear from the stick community uh, by being so ball-centric with this book. I hope there's a sequel uh, that's a a little bit more stick-oriented. Mm, could be that Bruce doesn't hear me. Uh, all right. Oh, there he is. There, there you are. Yes. Feel free to respond in full now. Oh,
1: yeah. I, no, I was just saying, uh, yes, there will be. Uh, I, I hadn't been planning on a stick sequel, but now that you've mentioned it, I think it's a brilliant idea, and I'd be happy to give you a cut for it. So, yeah. Um. Yeah, thank you.
0: I don't require a cut, but I just know that the stick community has some pretty ferocious activists in it. And uh, (laughs) you don't want to get on the wrong side of them. Julia Pastel is with us. She's managing director of CT Improv, co-host of the Literary Disco podcast. She's been on the show many times and she's on it again today. And the reason that she's on it today. So Bruce and I are of a similar age. Bruce is a little bit younger than I am, but we are of a similar age. And, you know, not to say that we are. Out to pasture when it comes to reading to children, but we are not quite as active about it as Julia is. So, Julia, uh, tell us about your daughter and uh, what's going on with her and books and reading right at this moment.
2: Sure thing. So, my daughter, her name is Vega. She is two and a half years old, and. She was in daycare full-time, and now she's with us full-time. I know there's a lot of people out there feeling that, and I'm sure that they're going to listen to this show in the dark of night, not right now, because if they're anything like my husband, they are reading a book 30 times in a row right now trying to get their kids to nap. So we are reading a lot. We're reading at every meal, at nap time, and bedtime, and we're just... We're plowing through, man. We, I have read so many books dozens of times in the last month. So I have never been more prepared for a show, ever. <laughs> <All
0: right. laughs> um, yeah, and I mean, I think it's also worth mentioning that, I mean, and you have alluded to it, uh, it, it's a memory that Bruce and I both have, the moment at which you have ceased to be interested in a particular book and the, mo- <laughs> yeah. and the, and the moment at which your child have ha- ceases to be interested in the same book. Are different by orders of magnitude right I mean it's 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 a number with zeros and zeros and zeros after it in terms of the ratio
2: yeah so one thing that I didn't realize until I was a parent is you should never embark on any activity unless you are willing to do it and I mean this literally 1,000 times so (laughs) sing a song read a book go somewhere discuss any topic um yeah she's not done with any book until about the 1000th reading now there's always an interesting fork in the road though because sometimes she's like done and wants to move on to a new book but if a book is really good um i'm always trying to like push it on her you know like don't you want to hear this one again um so basically we we develop our insane fixations and then it's a battle of what book we're going to read You know, one
0: book that I would really recommend to people after this whole conversation is over is the original William Goldman book of The Princess Bride, because it's really a book (laughs) about reading to your children. And it's also, to uh, one of the points made in Bruce's book, about a book that you love that your children might not love, too. So this the author, the narrator of that book, gives a children's book, he thinks, to his son without really checking it. And it turns out it isn't even the book he thought it was. His father had read it to him differently. And, Bruce, I I thought a particularly poignant uh, story at the beginning of the book because, yes, we we all remember being forced to read a book that we were very sick of for the 10,000 billionth time. But there's that reverse phenomenon of having a book that you feel is just full of gold and reading it to a not necessarily receptive children's audience. And I, I think this happened to you in particular with House at Pooh Corner.
1: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely it happened with, with House at Pooh Corner. But my kids didn't, my kids had been obsessed. Yeah, this, and my kids have been obsessed with these, these kind of uh, golden book uh, kind of uh, Disney knockoff Pooh books that were, that were really pretty horrible and, 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 and not well done. So at one point, I decided I wanted to read them the real Pooh. So we did, and they, you know, they kind of liked it. They sort of liked it, okay. They were kind of tolerant of it. I think, you know, there was there's kind of a, I don't know if genteel whimsy was really their was really their <laughs> thing when they were growing up. But I I remember getting to the yeah, it was very it was a very poignant moment for me because getting to the end of House at Pooh Corner and there's this this chapter where which I I, had, I think I'd read the book when I was a kid, but I certainly didn't remember. We're basically it's it's not really stated out loud, but what's happening is that Christopher Robin is clearly being sent off to, to boarding school. So there's just this gut wrenching scene, you know, to me as, as an adult reading this, where he's having to say goodbye to Pooh, and it's it's heartbreaking because Pooh doesn't really kind of understand what's going on, and and Christopher Robin is sort of awkward about it. He's he's a little bit like a Hugh Grant character in a in a in a you know in a rom com. He's kind of stuttering, and and it's it's just it's it's. It's just sad because it's you know it's it's it you know for me as an adult it evoked all this you know this this kind of putting away childish things and the idea of getting older and and the, you know the abandonment of poo it reminded me of you know i mean one of my uh you know achilles heels emotionally has always been uh, puff the magic dragon you know it's kind of the same you know jackie paper abandons puff you know christopher robin is abandoning poo it's ugh. um but yes, yeah, my kids, they were kind of like, ah, eh, you know, it's like, so he's going to have, you know, he'll have some new friends, you know, it's not so sad. You know, they were kind of, I think they were used to, you know, they were used to moving on in some ways, you know, that, that, that kind of, um, those kind of changes weren't, weren't as kind of emotionally fraught, uh, for them, so yeah, I was reading this and sobbing, and they were just kind of like, "What, Dad? What?" I'm <laughs> well, um,
0: I, I think that that's I just I will tell I promise not to pepper this show with my own stories, but I I, I reading that I had the a resonant moment because. Um, uh, I was asked quite a few years ago now to um, to go for, to some kind of special read a book day that was either statewide or nationwide but I was asked to go to a school in New Britain Connecticut and read a, a book to the children there and I happened at the time to be kind of vulnerable. I was going through a divorce. I felt really bad about everything and I was worried about my son and I went and I had picked um, Alexander and the Magic Pebble uh, the William Steig book and, and the, the, I was reading it to this class and it was a very kind of multiracial class and I'm white but my son is Latino and I think that may have been a a trigger and exactly the same thing happened. I got about one-third of the way through the story, and I just started crying. And here I am, this total stranger in front of these students. And so I did the thing where you lift the book up in your face, in front of your face so that you will block their view of you crying. But it just got worse and worse, and I just became progressively uh, more and more unhinged.
1: Uh, I made the mistake once of reading, uh, yeah, to my son's uh, kindergarten class, a wonderful book, uh, The Man Who Walked Between the Towers. It's about, uh, you know, Philippe Petit, who, who tightrope between the uh, twin towers. I'm, I'm yeah. sorry I'm blanking on the author and illustrator's name but yeah at the end there's a very subtle reference to 9 eleven but when I got to that yeah I just kind of broke down and these, these poor kids were they were kind of you know, <laughs> they were kind of
0: traumatized by that well you know julia one of the premises of Bruce's book and I'd love for you to talk about it is that we talk about children's literature often. In a kind of second-class way, as though you know it, it were not, it you know wasn't Thomas Pinchon or something like that, which obviously it isn't. And in fact, the idea of a Thomas Pinchon children's book is a very alarming thought to me now. But um, <laughs> but uh, but Julia, just say, you know, as somebody who consumes an awful lot of literature, how do you process that whole question?
2: You know, I think when I'm reading a really, really good book and I'm thinking now of some of my favorites like Harold and the Purple Crayon or Madeline like the classics that people know um, are, and there's a lot of new ones that I think are amazing um, I feel like children's literature, especially picture books, can start to occupy a zone, an intellectual zone that a lot of American adults are now uncomfortable with. And those two zones are poetry and fine art. So you're essentially reading a poem and looking at different levels of artistic expression in these illustrations. And it is so emotionally rewarding and intellectually satisfying to be forced to break down this poem that you're reading and this painting or drawing that you're looking at um, over and over. I mean, I one of the things that I've experienced as an English major and I have a, a graduate degree in writing is I've been thinking about, this is the closest reading I've ever done. Like even when I was doing my, you know, senior thesis on Faulkner. Like I did not read that book. I did not read these sentences so many times. So there have been nights where, um, my daughter's asleep and my husband and I will like discuss, uh, the book we will be like, Oh, what did that line mean? What does that line mean now? Um, and I just love that it's kind of getting adults into this zone of really close meditative level reading. Um, And I think that's great. And how could you discount that as an intellectual pursuit? I don't. I think it's really wonderful.
0: Let's let's do it. But we'll sub Bruce Handy in for Greg. Uh, let's uh, talk about <laughs> let's talk talk up in just this one limited role. Um, and uh, let's talk about a book. Let's talk uh, uh, about Good Night Moon by Margaret Wise Brown, uh, illustrations by Clement Hurd. But rather than Bruce or you or I, let's let Vega tell us uh, <laughs> a little bit about Good Night Moon.
2: Should we read it together? In the great green room, there was a... telephone, uh, a rather brilliant picture of cow jumping over um, uh, uh, with a bird sitting on chairs. Mm-hmm. With a toy house. And, and, uh, and uh, there were the kittens. Mm-hmm. And the pair of and a red toy house. And a young mouse. A young mouse, that's right. And, and brush in the foremost. And a old radio with green hush. Good night, room. Good night, moon. Good night, cow driving.
0: So I just got an email uh, in the (laughs) middle of that uh, from Vegas. People uh, saying something about a contract. (laughs) I don't remember agreeing to a contract. Um, She
2: will get one extra goldfish cracker at snack.
0: (laughs) All right. So um, uh, Declan is barking in the background, too. So so Bruce Handy, this, you know, I mean, this is in fact a piece of literature that will reward long conversations about it. So we can't have a long conversation, but get us started on a medium conversation about it. Oh, we might have lost Bruce. All right, then Julia, you and I have to have the conversation.
2: Sure. Good night, Moon. And Bruce is very passionate about it. So yes. I hope be he reappears.
0: Yeah. So I, I mean, mean, yeah, go ahead. I mean, what, what is this book to you? I, I think people read it different ways. You know, it's Harold Bloom is right. Um, people bring a lot to how they read it.
2: I mean, Goodnight Moon is a strange book. I, I think people have really taken it for granted. It's so, you know, it's it's the most checked out book in the public library, New York Public Library. That was a fun factoid that came out. Um, or maybe it was right after the snowy day, which is also amazing. Um, But it is very, very odd. Uh, It's this child's perspective, this little bunny's perspective on this huge room where he's trying to go to sleep and he sort of catalogs everything in the room and then says goodnight to it all. Um, But it has a tone that is very hypnotic. And almost bizarre at times. So, a comb and a brush and a bowl full of Uh, mush—these are weird things to be in a kid's room on his side table, frankly. (laughs) Although, Uh,
0: although Bruce Handy, the weirdest thing is that there's a telephone. Uh, uh, A little bunny rabbit who's going to bed doesn't want to be getting his parents' calls all night. And I I actually, they're all are are, all kinds. I never even realized
1: that. That's amazing. Yeah, I know. It's yeah, that's. And they don't even have an answering machine to like, you know, kind of cut it off or anything because, you know, it's 1945 or whatever
0: right so and and i'm thinking actually well one of the interpretations is he's not in his own bedroom he's in some other bedroom where he is he is being asked to go to sleep maybe because he couldn't sleep in his own bedroom there, there really has have been quite a lot of exegesis uh, of this book <laughs> and so and bruce one of the other mysteries is who is the quiet old lady whispering hush and where does she come from
1: well that's what i that's what i love about the book because it is you know it is mysterious you know, there's things that, 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 that aren't explained, you know? Um, yeah. Is she a babysitter? Is she like a, a grandmother? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure Margaret Wise brand and, and her, um, uh, you know, brilliant editor must've, you know, must've thought about that. that. So that's like a, you know, that's a deliberate choice they made. I mean, I think that's, you know, that, that, that's part of what's so great. I mean, it was, you know, it was interesting what you were talking about with, you know, close reading. I mean, for me, that was really, you know, the close reading of, you um, you know, Good Night Moon really germinated a lot for me. Just, you know, you start to think about it and yeah, why is it why is it like that? What is, you know, what is why is it hypnotic? What is, what is so what is so kind of compelling about this this thing that it seems so you know so simple. And and again yeah, the more you look at it, I felt, you know, the richer the richer the whole things get the whole thing gets. Well, the big, I mean, the big, yeah, like the idea of the the great green room, that reminded me so much of of the way the way a room feels to a kid. You know, I I remember my own bedroom, my childhood bedroom, it just seemed like this vast, you know, vast expansive space. And that's, that's what, that's partly what's so great about Margaret Weiss Brown. She's so, you know, through some combination of intuitiveness and artistry. And, you know, she did study, you know, children's literature, you know, she's just able to kind of instantly in that first sentence, just grab a, a child's mindset you know, and, and, and get that perspective. And that, I think that's part of the reason that, you know, children find that book so compelling.
0: Yeah. Julia, what were you about to say there?
2: I was going to say, I'm, well, two things. I love the quote in your book, Bruce, that she said to write a good children's book, you don't have to love children. You have to love what children love. And that that's yeah. captivating to me, but I th- I think you cannot talk about good night moon without the weirdest page I would say in classic children's literature, which is goodnight nobody, this blank page where we're just saying goodnight to an absence of people or an imaginary friend or a ghost. I mean it is it's creepy, it's captivating. Um, To some people, it's funny. I just don't even know what's going on with Goodnight Nobody. So if somebody could explain that to me, I would just be. Overjoyed. I always just
1: thought it was like to me, I always thought it was like uh, it was uh, I always thought it was like a, just kind of a great. I thought it was like kind of baby's first meta joke, you know. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, and it actually it's funny because it, my book was actually originally going to be titled uh, uh, In the Great Green Room—that was kind of its working title all along—and then there was a about six months before my book came out, there was a biography of Margaret Wise Brown with that title. So for a while we switched to Goodnight Nobody, um, as 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 the title. Uh, but yeah, I realized that didn't that didn't quite work. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's funny. That's what's so great about you know. I mean, you, you think about you know like, you know, something as simple as Goodnight Moon, but you know, there's there's as you know you're saying there's so many different interpretations and then yeah good night nobody that's probably my favorite part of the book and then for you it sounds like that was kind of your least favorite part of the book or you you, found it, you know kind of
2: I don't feel or positive or negative I just feel like wow what is this um, yeah. so it's shocking like the first time you come back to it as an adult it's shocking to me yeah. like it just kind of a splash of cold water like what is nobody
0: you know, Bruce. For some reason, I know a great deal about Little Golden Books, and uh, so Margaret Wise Brown actually. Little Golden Books were like The Twilight Zone in the sense that a lot of writers who were going to do other things, got, or actors, in the case of The Twilight Zone, too, got little got chances in this kind of factory environment. So Richard Scarry, Margaret Wise Brown, Joan Walsh, Anglin—they all did early work for Little Golden Books. Yeah. But but Bruce, one of the things that was not clear to me because I have not read. A, yeah, I think there might be two biographies of Margaret Wise Brown, but I haven't read either one of them. And I was, as you suggest in your book, kind of going off the name to imagine some... You know, maternal, or at least very, you know, uh, I don't know, dowdy aunt-like person writing this book. I always thought, yeah,
1: I thought she was the old lady whisper. I thought the the old lady whispering hush was kind of a self, you know, self portrait or something. You know, I'm not you.
0: You you almost can't find a picture of Margaret Wise Brown where she doesn't either have a cigarette or a glass of champagne uh, in her hand, and she's kind of a blonde, kind of party girl-looking person she was
1: this. yeah she sounds like i mean she i wish i could have known her she sounds like she was amazing yeah she she was this kind of she was like a screwball hair you know screwball comedy heroine like you know katherine hepburn and uh you know bringing up baby she actually looked uh, in real life she looked quite a bit like um you know carol lombard i think um yeah, very attractive yeah she she um yeah she was very independent yeah. She liked to party. She had, you know, her house was like full of animals. She was always doing these crazy stunts. You know, she once bought like a whole, like, uh, I think a whole cart full of flowers and just filled her whole her whole apartment with flowers. Um, yeah, she had a, uh, you know, she had a wild love life. She was, um, I'm now blanking on the, um, she was, uh, blanking on the name of She was involved for a long time with this uh, older woman who was the ex-wife of uh, one of the Barrymore's, um, you know, so she was she was kind of in, um, you know, in in kind of cafe society in New York in the thirties and forties. She knew people like Condé Nast and, you know, Cole Porter and 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 stuff like that. It's a real, yeah, it's a real wild, uh, wild life. Fun you know, life. Somebody, it'd be a great. Bi- I'm surprised nobody's made a biopic of her because it, it would be great.
0: Oh, masterpiece theater, absolutely, or something like that. Yeah, no, yeah. that's that's kind of got to happen. So, you know, Julia, one of the points that uh, Bruce makes in the book is that. That You can sort of divide children's literature between things that take place in sort of far off departures from real everyday settings, you know, mm-hmm. fairy tales and castles and stuff like that. And, and then things that happen in a pretty recognizable setting. Most of us are not actually bunnies, but everything else about the book seems, you know, much more that kind of here and now style of, uh, of writing.
2: Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of the greats. Uh, Madeline is another book I think that really holds up. Um, They do the here and now style that Bruce loves. Um, They do a great job of capturing what is interesting to a a really young kid. So in Madeline, I always think about the shape on the ceiling. It's shaped like a bunny rabbit. And of course, the big punchline that all the little girls want uh, appendectomy scar. Um, that the style is just so fun, and it, it lends itself to a real perspective shift for adults. And I, I think in the best cases, gets parents to see their kids not as little adults, but as the, the strange, you know, little people that they are with their weird little minds and interests. So, yeah, I love it.
0: You know, we have to take a break here. But Julia, you know, you said at the beginning that uh, reading a children's book is reading a poem and deciphering art. Uh, mm-hmm. And I do wonder. I mean, Margaret Wise Brown, uh, full, absolute, major props to her forever. I wonder what this book would be, would be without Clement Hurd's uh, illustrations. There's a way in which he seems almost as indispensable.
2: For sure. I, I mean, yeah, I I, I love
0: them. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce, go ahead.
1: Go ahead, oh yeah, no, I totally agree. And also, like, I, I think like the like the words itself, you know, those 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 drawings bear you know close you know close reading. You know, it, it's it's very subtle the way that you know the the room slowly gets darker and the, and the perspective shifts throughout and the and the you know and the rhythm between the big you know the big full full illustration pages and the more spot illustrations. I mean, it's very it's very 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 carefully crafted, really, when you when you when you look at it.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break here. Julia and Bruce are with us uh, for the duration, so sit back, and we'll be back. We're back. We're talking about children's literature uh, with us is Bruce Handy, uh, the author of Wild Things. The joy of reading children's literature as an adult. Julia Pastel is the managing editor of CT Improv and co-host of the Literary Disco podcast. She's joining us via Skype, which is not an annoying technology at all. Uh, most importantly, she is um, that was a legal requirement. Um, and most importantly, she is the mother of Vega. Uh, so, If it were up to us, me and the producer Jonathan McPence, we wouldn't talk about uh, Dr. Seuss just because we did a whole show about Dr. Seuss not that long ago. But neither one of you is going to put up with that. So we're going to talk about Dr. Seuss. So, Bruce, I remember and you're like, I think I'm four years older than you are. And, and so when I was in elementary school, teachers didn't really like Dr. Seuss. The school librarian didn't particularly approve of Dr. Seuss. There was a way in which there was some kind of embedded ideal of what a children's book was, and the drawings were less cartoonish and kind of, quote-unquote, better, classier, I think they thought. And the messages were different, too. I mean, The Cat in the Hat is really a pretty anarchic story. If you're a teacher trying to keep order in a classroom, Um, this is probably not the narrative you want pushed around on desks
1: well yeah no i mean yeah it's a story about a home invasion um but also (laughs) probably there was you know there i there might have been a little resentment too you know among educators because you know the cat in the hat was written expressly to to encourage children to read you know by by people who thought that the the children's readers of the time you know the famous you know uh, Dick and Jane stuff was, was, was too boring, you know, for children that it was, you know, turning them off, uh, turning them off reading. So there, there was actually, yeah, this whole sort of, you know, pedagogical war going on kind of behind, uh, behind, uh, Dr. Seuss. But yeah, that's funny. I don't remember, I don't remember that at all. Um, but yeah, it's funny. I was thinking, you know, going back to a little bit what, what Julia was saying about, about Madeline, which also makes me think of, um, uh, green eggs and ham, uh, you know, because they're both, both, they're both really funny, but the verse is so great too. Like, like in both those books, I just think those are two of the books that I, for my kids, I could just read again and again without getting tired because, you know, the verse, it's so, it's, it's almost really like musical. It's like song lyrics. It feels like you can just, you just, it just carries you along. It makes reading, reading those books for me was so fun. And it almost did feel like, I mean, you know, in some ways I'm, I'm like a, a, a sort of crooner monkey. I think if I, in another life I would, I would be Nat King Cole, but I, it felt like, like you, you can, you can read some of those texts and, and good night moon too. Almost like, uh, you know, it's almost like you can pretend you're a jazz singer. You can find different emphases, different, you know, every time you read it, you can find kind of a different way to do it. I mean, it's just, but again, it's, it's the brilliance of that, of that verse and that, that poetry, Julia, that you were talking about, I think is to me is so strong in, in a lot of Dr. Seuss and, and also in, in, you know, Ludwig Bettelman's with uh, a line, of course, with Dr. Seuss, he can get, you know, sometimes his stuff gets too sing songy and then you, you know, I mean, and it's so easy to parody too, but you know, when it, when it's, when he's hitting a home run, like for me with, with uh, green eggs and ham, there's just nothing like it.
0: Julia, you're a performer. Um, yeah. and these are books that you really can perform too.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> You know, we are, my husband and I are both are improvisers and comedians, so there's a lot of voices happening, like doing voices and everything. But Bruce is totally right. I mean, the relationship between music and some of these books is very close in that you kind of, you either catch the rhythm and you like surf the wave uh, yeah, and right. you can get really into it and it's a blast, uh, or you are slogging through um, <laughs> And I love uh, Doctor Seuss. It's like it's so wild, it's so weird um, that it is fun to just say these stupid words. Uh, there's, there's, the, it's a very simple joy for me. You know, uh, my daughter loves. Uh, there's a walket in my pocket, uh, and you're just saying rhyming words. She's not learning much. You know, there's no real like value in terms of like she's learning new vocabulary or there's a story. None of that is happening. But she is learning the pure pleasure of sound and of rhythm and of these weird little rhymes. And that is it's just a lot of a lot of fun. Uh, A modern book that is similar as little blue truck. This book is super popular. And I think that people think that it's popular because it's about trucks, but the verse is so perfect. I'm about two weeks away from like diagramming out this book. Every single <laughs> word in the book eventually rhymes with a different word in the book, um, in very surprising yet really simple ways. So it's, it, yeah, it's just fun to s- kind of sing through these books as Bruce is saying.
0: I, I'm, um, my son is now 30. So uh, I'm a long way from this, but but I, I think I can still remember how to do this. All right, are you ready? Look what we found in the park, in the dark. We shall take him home. We will call him Clark. He will live at our house. He will grow and grow. Will our mother like this? We don't know. You know, I mean... Enough- yeah, go ahead, Julia. Yeah. Yeah,
2: another one of my favorites that I, I don't think most people know about, although I could be totally wrong, is um this book Zin Zin Zin, a violin, which is just a description of an orchestra. But the writing is some of the most beautiful um, description of sounds that instruments makes that I've ever that I've ever read, and I don't have it in front of Just me. The, but title. I, I That's,
1: the title is amazing.
2: I mean. It's amazing. So yeah, that stanza is and soaring high and swooping in comes zin 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 a violin, um, and then oboe is like. Uh, uh, I can't remember it. But anyway, go find this book because every description of the sound is so perfect. And it has these beautiful almost Toulouse-Lautrecian illustrations um, that go with it. It's just like it's <laughs> I think it's my favorite poem, this children's book. It's well, wonderful. I think, it's, oh, All
0: right. I
1: think if I had had that book when I was a kid, I mean, Zin, Zin, Zin goes the violin. I think I would that would. Mark, I would I don't think I would ever be able to hear a violin and not think that. It's so evocative. It's it's amazing. I mean I'm sure it's one of those things that will will, you know, stick with Vega, you know.
0: So, Bruce, we have to I mean, this show is flying by very fast, understandably, and that's a good thing. So we've got to talk about where the wild things are. Uh, It's right there in the title of your book. Uh, But it's actually a book that you have a somewhat conflicted or at least complicated relationship with. So Maurice Sendak, where the wild things are. Tell us about this.
1: Well, yeah in some ways though yeah my relationship with that was really kind of the genesis for for writing this book in a way um yeah just when I was a kid I didn't I didn't like it you know I just never I never got it I was kind of aware of it as um you know uh it was a book that yeah you're talking about librarians not liking dr. Seuss I mean I remember my librarians you know at school they're always kind of pushing it on us and it, you know it had the you know it won the Caldecott so it had like the gold seal on it so. But yeah, I just, I I didn't like it. I just, I guess I just thought it was kind of weird and, you know, it's it's got that, that, that kind of dreamy logic and stuff where the, the, you know, the jungle just starts growing in Max's room. And I just, yeah, I just, I just couldn't relate to it, you know, but, and, and I, I guess I felt some, some, some kind of failure on my part, I guess in, in some weird little kid way. Cause I, I, it, I had some idea of it as an important, you know, quote unquote, good book. But anyway, so yeah, anyways, I don't know, 30 years later or whatever, when we finally had kids, somebody, uh, when my daughter Zoe was born, somebody gave us a copy of, uh, of Where the Wild Things Are. And just looking at it as an adult, suddenly it it worked for me. Like, I, I was just like, oh my God, this is so, this is so great. And it's it's such an interesting take on on anger and Max's anger. And it's it's so kind of psychologically kind of rich and evocative you know i've been in i've been in, at that point in my life i've been in therapy off and on for like i don't know 15 years or whatever so i think that kind of informed you know how, how i felt about it so something yeah it was like this rich psychological fairy tale i think um and i was very excited to share it with my kids and then you know the the punchline is you know when they were old enough to, to for me to read it to them they they just didn't like it either you know just didn't, uh, didn't uh,
0: <laughs> how about you julia
2: well, yesterday I let my daughter hang out nude on our deck and cover herself in finger paints. So, I mean, I'm on board with this style of living. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I like Where the Wild Things Are and she likes it too. She, I, I think it's really interesting to think about little kids and real anger and emotion. I, this is the same reason that kids like Elsa in Frozen is that she kind of loses it and goes nuts. Um, my daughter's particular obsession right now, though, is actually all tigers. So tigers being like terrifying and roaring and going bananas. And it's hard to kind of let kids explore that because it's scary. Anger is scary, even in a very little person. So I think where the wild things are is like a very cool way into a discussion of what it feels like and kind of letting them have their whole own imaginary world.
0: You know, Sendak um, in the early days, Sendak was an illustrator, kind of the way Sondheim was mostly just a lyricist for a long time. Um, Sendak illustrated these amazing books called The Little Bear Books, which were written by somebody else and, and, you know, Wild Things and In the Night Kitchen and Outside Over There. Those begin to be this, these expressions of Sendak's actual take on the world and, and you know, I mean, Bruce, I actually had a little correspondence with Sendak and some phone conversations in the 80s. He, he, did, he thought children's books should contain stuff like this, just in the same sense that Bruno Bettelheim and Uses of Enchantment, you know, says that children's literature is full uh, of their negative thoughts and their worst case scenarios. You know, I mean, uh, um, Sendak was pretty radical about this. He, he thought children's books should be a little unsettling.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. I think it's. I think that's true too. And I think also, um, you know, my own not liking of uh, where the well things are as a kid, notwithstanding. But yeah, I, I love fairy tales and and the kind of disruptions of of a lot of fantasy books. And yeah, I think it's sad because I think there's so you know so often the impulse, I think, for adults when children's books, yeah, is that they shouldn't be unsettling. They should be kind of comforting, and the, and they should be, yeah, they should be sort of pedagogical. You know, you should be learning. You know, learning something intellectual or, or, or learning morals. And it, yeah, I think it's all about, um, I, I think it's all about a lot of the, a lot of those impulses I think are about, you know, adults misunderstanding, uh, children or, or, or being uh, too cautious, you know, for their children or, or, um, yeah, it's just it, it, it's. I, I think kids kids can take a lot more than we sometimes give them uh, give them credit for. For
0: sure. Yeah, actually, Sendak in one famous interview near the end of his life said that parents who had that kind of problem his work with his work should, in his words, go to hell. Uh, so as children's authors, we're back to another well actually we should talk about this in the next segment. Uh, Julia and Bruce will be with us for one more segment. The show is flying by. It's actually flying by faster than the sex show we did yesterday, which I don't, wow. I don't know what that That's means or how I, maybe it just says something about me. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be back. We make our breaks <laughs> if you don't like All right. This is Colin. Um, and as uh, every, like everybody else, practically, uh, I am in my house uh, doing the show. Uh, that means I need a lot of help from other people, including the producer of this episode, Jonathan McPants, and especially Kat Pastor. She is there in the studio where, so that I don't have to be. Uh, and uh, my gratitude to her knows no bounds. And she does such a great job, too. Thanks to all the people uh, who back us up, uh, including Katie Tularski, Tim Rasmussen, and all of our wonderful technical people like Gina. Truda, We'll be back tomorrow with our The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. We are going to talk about, among other things, the HBO adaptation of The Plot Against America by Philip Roth. So, uh, But right now, the time is flying fast. And Bruce Handy is with us. He's the author of Wild Things, The Joy of Reading Children's Literature as an Adult. Uh, Julia Pistel is managing director of CT Improv, mother of Vega, co-host of the Literary Disco Podcast. So one of the things that happens when you become a parent, particularly well, depending on who you're a parent of, you start thinking, well, where's the children's book for this kid or that kid? Where's the children's book <laughs> for, for for me? I, I, I will say that raising a, a child of color, my, you know, my son is Latino, he's of Mexican extraction, and, you know, finding... Latino and especially Mexican appropriated appropriate children's books back in the early '90s was was difficult. We found books like Gilberto and the Wind, and there was a children's book about Diego Rivera, but it was it was not easy. But I mean, e- even Julia finding that particular kind, uh, the kind of book that you want to have as, as sort of an alter ego, you know, Max might be a good alter ego for a boy who's got anger, but uh, but for a wild girl. Uh, there are some very special choices you can make, and I think you do want to talk about some of those wild girls.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, I think that this is now me speaking to some older books and books that I've revisited as an adult many times. I've always enjoyed rereading middle grade or Y literature, um, like lots of folks do, but there are so many books that represent uh, different kinds of girls that are just so formative and transformative for, I think, many people in my generation, like Matilda, and of Green Gables, um, The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle. I mean, there I guarantee there are listeners, like, nodding their heads, like, yes, I am Matilda. And I think in particularly in children's literature, there's room for so many different kinds of girls that gets slowly uh, narrowed down and stamped out as girls get older. Um, so... I I just think a lot of women identify so hard with these books and feel like they have these characters inside them.
0: And she didn't say, Bruce, Ramona, although I know that's a big book for Julia. Oh, Ramona, of course. um, But Bruce, uh, (laughs) it's also Beverly Cleary is uh, big in your book, too. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about Ramona, too.
1: Oh, I just—I—I I, I mean, to me, Ramona—you know, Ramona the Pest, uh, especially. I mean, I think all the Ramona books are great, and, and basically every—I think everything Beverly Cleary wrote is—is is pretty great. But yeah, to me, Ramona the Pest is really her, her apex. I mean, yeah, I read that—that that book came out. I guess I, I think I was in third grade or something when that came out, and I remember reading it, and I totally identified with Ramona too. I mean, it's just such a great—it's just great, like kind of psychological, like you know, portrait of a of a kid and and you know, trying to find her way through the you know, the kind of the the weird like social rules and and mysteries of, of, uh, of kindergarten. I think, um, I I think I'm probably guilty of this too often, but, uh, you know, comparing things to Henry James. But I, I definitely think, I think, you know, in, in a weird way, Ramona is, 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 is kind of Henry James for, for kids a little bit. Um, you know, but happily, <laughs> unlike, unlike Henry James's uh, heroines, she doesn't get punished, you know, but she, and she's such a great character. I mean, she's so funny. She's so like, she's so fresh up. She's so like, eager to embrace life. I mean, how can you not love Ramona?
0: Well, I, I look forward to the next edition where you'll be—you'll blurb the back. It'll say, "If you liked Daisy Miller, you are going to love <laughs> Ramona."
2: Um,
0: so, yeah, and I, I, we are—we're ha- fast running out of time, and we're just going to have to leapfrog here. So, everybody has their own idea about what the perfect children's book is, and we've certainly mentioned a whole bunch of them. Uh, but for a lot of people, it's Charlotte's Web. Um, so, which I I don't know, I, that's a book that I have struggled with a little bit. Um, and, but I want to, well, since Julia, you made an affirmative noise, uh, you have to start.
2: Sure. I mean, uh, Evie White, I think is a genius and I think it's the perfect mix of really depressing. Um, which we love, we we human beings love, but also has that, it makes meaning out of sadness. Um, it's not just randomly sad, or it's not sad before the story begins, like so-and-so has, their parents were dead and they're an orphan. Like we watch death happen, and we watch this threat to Wilbur's life, you know, there's very high stakes. Um, so I love it. Um, I, I really love it. And who could ever forget the scene where all of Charlotte's little children float away in the wind I mean I haven't read that book in years and I feel emotional talking about it um, yeah I think it's a classic Colin get on board
0: no it, yeah. it is you know it is it's, it's a classic and, and I had a problem with it as a kid for exactly the reasons that you're talking about because mm. it does strike I, I think I might have been pretty depressed anyway <laughs> so I, I'm not sure I really needed that book but maybe I did need that book Bruce I, I should let you talk about Charlotte's Web though
1: well, yeah, I mean, I just, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I think Julia, you put it perfectly, you know, it, it's, it's dark, but it's, you know, but it's also light. I mean, it's really, you know, I mean, it's really, you know, I mean, you know, the, the cliche of the, the circle of life is a cliche, but like all cliches, it's, you know, or most cliches, it's it's true. And that's really what, you know, that's really what the, what the, what the subject of the book is, I think, you know, I also want to just, you know, make a little, uh, you know, case, uh not that the case needs to be made for, you know, E.B. White as, as a craftsman too. My, my wife is a, a novelist. Her name is Helen Schulman. And she sometimes, she teaches MFA students and she sometimes teaches um, Charlotte's Web. I mean, I'm, I'm just always struck by, you know, what she pointed out to me, just the beginning of the book, the very first sentence is, you know, Papa, where are you going with that ax? I mean, that immediately, immediately sets up what the stakes of the book are, like what you were talking about, Julia. And also it's like, and the frankness of it. I mean, it's an ax, you know, like, that's you know it's it's a little bit harsh you know it's it's um you know he's not he's not hiding what 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 this book is about and what like a farm is like and what happens on farms and what happens to animals and and it's it's again it's kind of going back to what we were talking about too about you know trusting kids to be able to kind of deal with you know things that adults might you know sometimes think they're not ready to deal with or not able to deal with you know we want to hide these things and and uh you know EB white doesn't hide it, but he does it. You know, he makes such beautiful art out of it. You know, it's just yeah, I get I get emotional talking about it too.
0: It's it's also I think very much a book about being a writer, um, and I think particularly for writers in show business because. Uh, as has been pointed out many times Julia Charlotte doesn't get the Charlotte does the work she does the writing you know, and the yeah. pink gets all the credit um, which I'm sure describes exactly the feeling a lot of uh, television and movie writers feel <laughs> about actors whom they've made seem either very funny or very eloquent over the years right The it, it really not, is yeah, go ahead
2: yeah not to mention Templeton the rat who's like the showrunner or something going out and getting all these words you know like it is really a team effort just to save one pig's skin. Um, yeah, it's about teamwork.
0: All right, so we're almost out of time. I, Bruce, <laughs> I know that one of the things that happened to you uh, writing a book about this. It's impossible to be comprehensive about this. Children's literature yeah. is such a huge beast. So, mm-hmm. I don't know, is is there a particular book or author that you wished uh, that you had not excluded, just f- for oh, obviously... Oh, well,
1: God, well, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, so many, it's, it's, it's hard to say. You know, I, I, it was just making me think, going back to what you were saying, kind of at the beginning, but I'm sorry I forget the title, but the book that you loved as a kid that nobody else has ever heard of because, <laughs> you know, when I was working on this book and also when it came out, like, everybody would come up to me they'd say oh are you writing about so and so and um again it would yeah be some book like I had never heard of you know but to them it was like the biggest book of their childhood you know and I think that it speaks both to the you know to the breadth of children's literature that there's so much great stuff out there and also just the the peculiarity of what what happens to strike you as a as a as a child and what ends up you know what ends up staying with you and what's what's important to you I mean you know I, I, I never get tired of hearing about the, these kind of, uh, these sort of, I don't know what you call it, little, you know, special pet books or whatever, you know, that people have.
0: Right. Uh, yes, Julia, so.
1: if you have one. Yeah, re- real quick, Julia. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Um, uh, Brendan Wenzel is, he's, oh brand god, new.
1: I love him! Sorry. He's <laughs> unbelievable.
2: Yeah, he, he's he's doing things with perspective and emotion um, that, that nobody else is doing, and he's just amazing. So people should go find him, even if you don't have a kid, like this is hmm. his books are recent, but they're wonderful. Brendan,
0: Brendan Wenzel, Brendan Wenzel. All right, so we have to stop there. We are so grateful to these two wonderful guests, uh, Bruce Handy and Julia Pistel. Also grateful to Jonathan McPants for conceiving of the show. Uh, I don't know if we mentioned the name Simon, uh, that's his, his little boy who is just discovering that he doesn't want to go all the way to the end of Goodnight Moon. It's time to jump over <laughs> to another book, maybe. Jonathan thinks it may maybe because the end of Goodnight Moon is too final, too sad. Who knows? <laughs> Everything's a little bit sad though. All right, well thanks to all of you who listened. Thanks to Bruce and Julia. We'll be back tomorrow with The Nose. Miracle somehow.